Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Good morning. Greetings in the name of our preeminent Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings. We're going to talk about what that means later this morning, but Christ is of the highest rank. He is exalted above all, and that is why Paul called him preeminent. So I greet you in the name of our Savior today, and our call to worship is a passage of Scripture that you're well familiar with, the second psalm that reminds us that while nations may rage and heathen people may shake their fist against God, He sits in the heavens and He laughs at those who will refuse to bow a knee and kiss the Son, to bow a knee to the preeminent ruler of all. So here's our call to worship today. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And here the conclusion. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, You have been so good and kind to call us out of darkness into the kingdom of Your Son. We thank you that you've called us to be your people of Foundation Church here in Ohio. Lord, what a blessing to look back and know that it was nothing that we did, but it was only your kindness and your mercy and your love for us while we were yet sinners that you called us out of that darkness and into light. Lord, we never rejoice as much as we should. We are never as grateful as we ought to be, but I pray that you would help us to come this morning 
to put distractions aside, to come with truly grateful hearts. Lord, in the midst of gray and cold outside, we should have joy. We should be a joyful people that you have called us, that you have gathered us, you spread a table before us to feast. You have given us your word, revealed yourself to us in it that we might know you better and love you more. And so I pray that you would, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, that we would hear and see and taste the goodness of our God this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stay standing for just one more moment while I read my short text for today's sermon. It is from Colossians 1, and I'm just going to read verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, thank you that you have given us your word. You have been kind and chosen to reveal yourself to us in the pages of this book. We thank you, Lord, that you have done so, that we might know you better and love you more. Oh God, I want to bring your word to bear this morning. I want to uh, look at it closely, examine it, understand it, study it, commit it to our hearts, and most importantly, not just be hearers and readers and studiers of your word, but I want us to be doers. I pray that you would now speak through me as I work to rightly divide your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I, uh, my King James Bible is getting old, and um, if you were to come up and look at it closely, well, you'll see there are pages uh, falling out. My Philippians, thankfully, has uh, been well used. And um, if you look at the very beginning of the Bible, you see the blank page here at the left, and then it goes right to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. So I have permanently lost... Uh, God's Word isn't lost, but this particular copy of God's Word is lost in my Bible. Uh, I'm missing the first three chapters of Genesis. If you're going to miss any part of your Bible, um, you don't want to miss the first few chapters of Genesis. That's not a good chunk to be missing, right? That is so foundational because it gives us the beginnings. It gives us our origins. It tells us where we came from, where the world came from, etc. And we know our good friend uh, Ken Ham and his Brothers down there in uh, Cincinnati labor hard just to stress to us the importance of know the beginning. Know the beginning. There are answers in Genesis, right? Well, the other part of your Bible that you don't want to lose, if your Bible is old and beat up like mine, whatever you do, don't lose Colossians chapter 1. I mean, if you, you, know, if you have the fire in the house and you've got to grab something and get out, grab your spouse, grab your children, and then run and grab... Colossians chapter 1. You know, if you've got your pages of your Bible spread out, that part of the Bible, all, all the Bible is God's Word, right? It's all important. But if we want to really understand Christ, and I want to speak especially to the younger people of the church this morning. I'm speaking to everyone. But those of you who are just growing up and you have heard uh, others in the church, you've heard the adults, you've heard Pastor Robinette for weeks and months and years talking to you about Jesus, but you're still trying to sort it out. Uh, I don't think any children here have ever seen Jesus with your eyes, have you? I don't think so. I haven't either. 
So it's hard sometimes for us to understand someone that we haven't seen with our eyes, that we haven't heard with our ears. And so what I want to do today, since we're all going to be working to memorize um, this passage, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 19 this month, I want to dig a little deeper and give you some better understanding maybe of what these verses mean. And so I, I worry, I was telling the brothers up here earlier that I worry a little bit about this turning into a Bible study teaching. A sermon is supposed to be more than just passing on information. It, we should do that, but it should also always be pointing us back to the gospel, pointing us back to Christ. And so, uh, but you know, one of the ways that we, that we come to love Christ is to know him better, right? Any of you, uh, when Shelby started her, her courtship and her time with Mitchell, I'm sure one of the first things they did, as you know, they knew each other for a while, but was they were getting to know each other, right? I want to understand you better. Tell me about yourself. And any of you that go through that process, I'm sure you'll want to be doing that as well. Uh, you don't just say, you know, what do you believe? That's part of it, but you want to know more about that person. Well, if we want to love the Lord Jesus, we want to know more about him. So this, this letter from Paul is really a jewel. You know, the Bible talks about uh, the pearl of great price. This is one of those chunks of wisdom that we really want to grab onto and understand, it may have been all that the people in Colossae had. I mean, they may have had the Old Testament, um, but they may not have. And they certainly didn't have most of the rest of the New Testament. It may be that as they came to Christ, and this was a fairly new church, it may be hard for us to imagine this, that they didn't know anything about Jesus other than what was in the Old Testament and what they had heard from their pastor, tell you who that is in a second, and then what they had in this letter. You know, we, we're blessed. We have the full uh, beauty of the whole New Testament. We have all these books of doctrine and the life of Jesus and the history of the church. They may not have had that. Or they may have had only bits and pieces. So before I go into I just want to go a verse at a time and walk us through these ten verses and help us to know better what the words mean. But before I do that... I like to have a little bit of context about the book. And so you may know some of this. Uh, some of you young people especially may not. But when I say context, I mean I want to tell you what was going on at that time and a little bit about Colossae and why Paul wrote this letter to this church. <clears throat> Unlike some of the other books we've read, uh, the church in Colossae was not a church that Paul had ever been to. You know, Paul made these various missionary journeys as he was out trying to share the gospel um, but he never, he never went to Colossae. That's not one of the churches he planted. The man that planted that church was a man named Epaphras. We learned his name in our memorization passage from last month. you remember that? As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So Paul edified this man, Epaphras, to the church. So Colossae, if you picture it, uh, I'm not great on geography, and I'm backwards, but if you picture the Mediterranean Sea, that's like a big oval this way, right? And over here, uh, so you had Turkey, is kind of above, they called it Asia Minor. Turkey is north of the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And on the far west side, on the left side, is where most of those seven churches from Revelation were. Remember a couple years ago, Pastor Robinette taught us through the churches about Smyrna, Laodicea, all those churches? So those are kind of on the, the west side. And then on the far right side is the Euphrates River. How many have heard of the Euphrates, the mighty Euphrates? Okay, so that runs down, kind of down into where Syria is now, I think. 
And then in between those was Colossae. Colossae was a little town, not a big, bustling, important town like Corinth or some of these other places that Paul wrote to. Uh, but apparently Epaphras, when Paul was ministering over in Ephesus, which is over on the, the west side, the left side of Asia Minor there, when Paul was preaching the gospel there and planting that church, Epaphras had come from his home in Colossae and gone there and heard the gospel. And Epaphras was changed by the Lord. He felt the call to go and share the good news. And so he went back to his hometown in Colossae from Ephesus and planted a church there. Okay, so you understand where this is happening. And Paul's writing them the letter. Um, and he starts out by saying, you remember in the very first verse, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Sometimes he didn't have to tell people that. They knew who he was because he had planted the church. But here he had to kind of remind them, I have authority to speak to you, even though I haven't met you and I didn't plant your church. I'm an apostle. The word apostle means sent out. So Paul says, I was sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. And in fact, I'm one of the ones who ministered and evangelized Epaphras, the minister who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Okay, so Paul sets that up early in the letter. Um, this book was written about the same time as Ephesians and Philippians. And Paul's writing from prison. Again, remember in prison, he talked about many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds. Paul's in prison, and he says, the fact that I'm in prison for the gospel is making other Christians stronger. Now they're bold to go out and preach the word without fear. So again, he's writing from prison here. One of the main reasons Paul wrote this letter appears to be to counter some false doctrine that was being taught, some wrong teaching. So do you remember in the first part we memorized last month, he greets them, he, um, he says, I'm praying for you, he encourages them about Epaphras being their minister, that's kind of his, you know, the opening part of the letter. But then in this, in this next section that we're going to be memorizing this month, Paul is giving them some doctrine, some teaching, because apparently some false doctrine has wafted its way into the church. And we don't know exactly what the false doctrine was. It appears to be something about Christ that was not correct. And so Paul wants to step in as a good pastor should. How many times has Pastor Mark stood up here and said, I don't know, but I'm seeing things in our church, and I, you might be thinking this, but that's wrong. I want to set us straight on that. We've all heard that a bunch of times, right? Praise God for a pastor who looks and sees things and can sniff out when something isn't right. And so that's what Paul was doing here. He said, there's some teaching that you're hearing and it's not right. Uh, he wants to encourage the Colossians to adhere to what Epaphras has been teaching them. It's not Epaphras that's teaching them wrong. Paul says he's a faithful minister of Christ to you. And you've learned from him and that's good. But what you're hearing from wherever else, you know, be careful. And so he sets about to... Um, to give them some teaching, some points to learn about Christ. And that's what I want to do uh, this morning. So let's dig in a little bit and just talk about these one verses at a time. I'll just make a couple comments on most of the verses, and then I'll kind of try to tie it all together, okay? So verse 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it. Okay, so what did he hear? He just talked about how we heard from Epaphras how faithful you are. Oh, I rejoice, Paul says, I'm hearing how faithful you are, that, that the day you heard of it, you knew the grace of what? The grace of God and truth. Apparently, as soon as they heard it, many of them grabbed onto it right away. Since the day you heard it, 
you, you, you knew the grace of God in truth. So Paul says this is a wonderful thing. And because of that, since the day we heard about this, of your faithfulness, we do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be, and here's the first key point, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul says, here's one of the things I'm praying for you, that you'll be filled with knowledge. Now, some of you have heard me say before, I was an academic growing up. Does anyone know what an academic means? That means you're one of these weird people that likes to go to school and study and learn things. I just like learning things. I like filling my head with knowledge. And part of it is probably pride. Like, I knew things that my siblings didn't know, and I knew things that my other friends didn't know. I got a 92 on the test, and they only got an 85. So, you know, it made me feel like I'm really smart. Well, Paul warns us when he wrote to the Corinthians. Remember, he said, be careful. Knowledge can puff up. We all know what puff up means, right? You know, Pastor Mark does a better puff-up imitation than I do, but we all know what that means. We start thinking, I'm pretty good because I know stuff. And Paul says, be careful of that. You know, that's not what makes you godly is how much you know. But at the same time, I want to call to your attention as Paul's writing to these people, he's saying, watch out for learning the wrong things. He said, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul's praying that they would be filled with knowledge. Now, he doesn't mention trigonometry in here, and he doesn't mention Algebra 2. Much to Steve Demme's dismay, those things are probably important to know, but that's not, what Paul, that, that's not the kind of knowledge Paul's talking about. He said, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding, that you might, verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, being fruitful. So this Latin word, I always, whenever I preach, I seem to always throw in one Latin word. I don't know why. I don't know Latin, but I know the word fructuosus because I've heard it. Some of the Pur- there was one of the Puritans, I don't remember who it was, he asked that the word fructuosus be on his gravestone. Probably his name and the word fructuosus. It just means fruitful. What does that mean? It means he wants, to be, he wants to have lived a life that was productive for the kingdom of God, that he did something, he bore good fruit, right? Not to point to himself, but because God calls us to bear good fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be, if you're an apple tree, you're supposed to, well, that hurts me to talk about this. <laughs> if you have an orchard with apple trees, Heath, we're supposed to have apples on our apple trees, we need to talk to Bodie Wallace. We need help. I don't know. I need help especially. This is my sixth year of apple trees. Last year we had uh, two apples. I let one of them stay on there until Christmas, and I went out and it was frozen rock solid. If you are an apple tree, you're supposed to bear apples. If we are Christians, we are supposed to bear the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul says, I'm praying that you would be fruitful. And again he says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a good thing to know about God. Do you get this? Paul says, don't be puffed up by knowledge, but I'm praying, I'm praying that you would have knowledge of God. And remember, these people didn't walk around with a Bible like we have, chock full of of all this information. Now, they had what they needed in God's providence. But what does he say after that? 
Um, Christians should seek to grow in our knowledge, especially the knowledge of God and his will. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if you're going to know anything, you taught, you heard this, you kids ever heard this word epistemology? That means how we come to know things. How do we learn things? How do we know them? If you're going to come to know things, you look around and you see grass and buildings and people and people being born and people dying and all these incredibly interesting things. And as a young person, you say, how does this all make sense? How does this fit together? I'm trying to understand. You're trying to know and develop you know, what we call a worldview, a way of understanding things. Well, the Bible says you're not going to really be able to make sense of anything until you very first fear the Lord. In other words, know that he is God, believe that he is God, listen to him, do what he says, submit yourself to him, and then everything will start to make sense as you get older. Okay? In the next chapter of Colossians, in chapter 2, verse 3, it says of Christ that in him are hid all the treasures... It doesn't say treasures of silver and gold. It says treasures of, what, anybody know? Wisdom and knowledge. So again, it's like, it's like Proverbs 1. If you want to know things, if you want to have wisdom and knowledge, they're hidden. But Paul says, I'm going to tell you where they are. They're hidden in Christ. If you go to Christ, as Psalm 2 says, and you bow the knee and kiss the Son, then this is the beginning of opening up your mind and your heart to really understand the world as God wants you to understand it. Paul wants us to understand God. All right, verse, uh, the next verse says, strengthened with all might. He's praying that you would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. So when he says strengthened with all might, that doesn't mean almighty. What he's saying is, I'm praying that God would give you all the strength, all the might that you need to go and do what he's asked you to do. That you would be enabled to go do the work that he's given you so you can be fruitful. <clears throat> okay. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, when I hear children recite this passage at the end of the month, I have a feeling that if we didn't talk about this, some people would misunderstand this verse. So let's talk about it. Um, I'm going to read it again. Giving thanks unto God, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. God has made us meet to be partakers of something. So what does this word meet mean? Remember last year we memorized in Philippians, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all. Well, hopefully someone has explained this to you. If they haven't, or maybe they have, and I'll remind you, this word means uh, fitting or appropriate, suitable, proper. Okay, Even as it is proper, even as it is fitting for me to think this of you all. So what he's saying is, giving thanks to the Father which has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance. God has an inheritance for us, but we are not fit to receive it. Anybody ready to go to heaven and meet God and make a case for why you deserve to be there? You know, we're not fit in our, in our sinful condition. But if you raised your hand, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'm not fit, but Christ has made me fit. He's made me ready. He's made me suitable. In Genesis 2.18 you know this passage, the Lord God said, after he made Adam, 
It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help, what? Meet for him. So it's not a help meet. I mean, I hear people say that. Oh, she's my help meet. She is my help. Meet for me. She is my helper, suitable for me. Right? That's what the passage is saying. So that word meet means fit or suitable. Okay. He has prepared for us the eternal happiness of heaven. And he's made us worthy to inherit it. We all, who wants to go to heaven? We all do, right? But let me read you a passage from John 14, uh, the first uh, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. This is Jesus speaking. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's one of the most exciting passages in the whole New Testament. But have you ever shown up at a party and you were like underdressed or you realized you probably didn't deserve to be there? Who's ever done that? You show up at an event. Now, I love the Goldsmith's wedding because that was an informal wedding, right? Formal for the bride and groom kind of, but not so much for us. You could just kind of wear business casual or even blue jeans. But sometimes you show up to an event. Sometimes people will even say, yeah, it's not going to be real formal. And you go, great. And you throw on whatever and you show up and you realize their definition of not real formal is apparently different than my definition. And immediately you just feel like the whole room is staring at me and I am in the wrong place. You ever been there? I'll, I'll, well, let's see. Michael, your family may be the only one that doesn't know this story. I've told it before, but I'll briefly retell the story of one of my most embarrassing moments. Yes, it's the annual slam dunk contest at the University of Notre Dame. It was advertised right there in the student paper. And um, my buddies were like, hey, Cusel, you ought to sign up for that. You know, obviously joking because my vertical leap is like three inches. But we read carefully and there was, there was a 10-foot hoop section and then there was a different section of guys that wanted to dunk on a 9-foot hoop. And I thought, I'm going to do that. I thought this would be hilarious. Me and my roommate and all my buddies will go over and, you know, I'll dunk on the 9-foot hoop and they'll cheer, you know, whatever. I'm in college, you know, so it's like it made sense at the time. So the day came, you know, there's like 50 events as part of this big spring festival at Notre Dame. The, the weather in South Bend is usually like zero degrees and snowy for four months in a row. So when April comes, college people kind of go crazy. Like, they're back to life. It's nice outside. So the date came for the slam dunk contest. And Michael, I walked across campus with my two buddies. And it was at the what they called the Notre Dame bookstore. And behind the bookstore, they had this basketball court. And I'm expecting to see like, you know, 10 people there. No, there were more than 10 people. There were like a couple thousand people. They had bleachers set up for the slam dunk contest. And I immediately felt like I was not fit to be there. I was not meet to be partaking in this particular festival. And then the thought occurred to me, I wonder if I can even dunk on a nine foot basket. This could be really embarrassing. And I recognized some guys that were standing under the hoop. Uh, there was Stacy Turan, who ended up playing for the Chicago Bears. There was Dave Durson, who ended up playing for the Chicago Bears. There was Greg Bell, who ran track and played football at Notre Dame and was a running back for the Buffalo Bills. And there was Andy Cusel. <laughs> There's your first bracket. 
And uh, what happened in the next two minutes, they had boom boxes going, they're doing 360 behind the head, you know, and then there's me. And uh, it was evident to all that I was not meet to be there, okay? Uh, one of the most embarrassing two-minute stretches of my life, my buddy Chris Brown was there, my roommate, who ended up playing for the Steelers, and he was the only one cheering for me, but it was kind of in a mocking way. Um, Show us what you got, Kuzel, you know, I'm like, I don't have anything, I got nothing. So a couple thousand people saw me make a big fool of myself. So that came to mind when I read this passage. Now that's, that's a funny story. Well, it's a painful story, but it's funny to you. But it will not be funny. Think of going to heaven to be in front of the holy and perfect God. And the issue is, the question is, are you fit? Are you meet to, to take this inheritance? And the answer is no. In ourselves, none of us are ever meet for that inheritance, to partake of it. But Paul says, I'm giving thanks to the Father, the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance. God has made us fit because of what he did in Christ. Christ has paid the price and now we're fit to go and be with our perfect God. Isn't that good news? Okay, so remember that when you say that verse. He has prepared us for this wonderful happiness of heaven. He's made us worthy to receive that and inherit it. All right, next verse. Um, who has delivered us, this is talking about God the Father, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now when we hear the word translated, we usually think of languages, right? You need to get from Spanish to English, and I need someone, I listened to part of Pastor Robinette's podcast, He's talking in English, and you need someone to translate. So Nang Tong was probably standing there, help him translate so the people that speak Burmese can understand what he's saying, right? That's the, what we think of in translation. Well, that Greek word, I looked it up. I don't know Greek either, but I looked up the word in the uh, concordance. This word translated means transferred or carried away. So what Paul is saying here is that God the Father has carried us away from the power of darkness, that's the dominion of Satan. He's carried us away from that and carried us into the kingdom of his dear son. All right, and now for the next few verses, he's going to talk about his dear son. He's going to talk about Christ and give us some more information about him. We want knowledge about Christ, right? Who wants knowledge about Christ? We all want to know about our Savior so that we can know our Savior. All right. The next verse says, in whom, so now Paul has shifted to talking about Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Redemption. So here's another word that a lot of children don't know. Most children go through a whole day, even if you're homeschooled, and they probably never use the word redemption. Can any children raise your hand and tell me you used the word redemption this week in a sentence in your writing? Probably not. I didn't either when I was a child. Um, so here's what that word means. We're going to sing after the sermon, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, what? My great Redeemer's praise. My great Redeemer. So what does this mean, Redeemer and redemption? A Redeemer is someone who pays a price so they can have you. I had uh, Ruth chapter 4 read earlier by Jeff. And that's an example, it's a type of 
Christ of Boaz, this wealthy man, being a redeemer. He went and said, I want Ruth to be my wife. Ruth wanted to be his wife, and he wanted Ruth to be his wife. Did you enjoy that scene, by the way? You have to picture this in, like, real life, what's happening. When you read it, it sounds kind of stiff, but Boaz is basically going, I want to marry Ruth. She came and she, you know, made it, made it known to me that she wants to be my wife, but this other guy has a chance to redeem her first. So he goes to the other guy, her nearer kinsman, and he says, do you want to, you know, redeem this land? And the guy says, yeah, I'll take the land. But then when he tells him that he has to marry Ruth, the guy says, oh, I can't do it, deals off. So Boaz, as quickly as he can, takes off his sandal, makes a deal, and says, I will redeem Ruth. And all the other men come and go, we hear you, you know. Basically, it's like, it's like cheering, I think is what was happening. They're like, yay for Boaz, he got her. He has redeemed her. And he gets to take Ruth as his wife. And they are in the line of Christ. You read the lineage. They had Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David, King David. And Jesus was the son of David. Incredible story. So Boaz was a redeemer. Um, Noah Webster, I looked it up in the word redeemer. Redeem means to purchase back, to ransom, to liberate from captivity or bondage. So somebody's in trouble. Someone needs to be ransomed. Someone needs to be bought back. Anybody ever seen the, the movie Polycarp that came out a few years ago? That's a well-done movie. In Polycarp, there's a little girl being sold as a slave, and he shows up. They're bidding on her so they can take her home and use her for labor. And Polycarp way outbids everybody, and they all look back, and they said, Who are you? The guy that's bidding, who are you? And he said, I'm Polycarp. And he outbids her and takes her home. He redeemed her. He didn't want her going to the heathen. He said, I'm going to bring her home and teach her about the Lord. The other definition from Noah Webster is to make free by, to free by making atonement. Okay, so it says, uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. Hebrews 25 says, remember Hebrews is the book that tells us about how Christ is the great high priest. And how now that he's made his sacrifice, we don't need priests to be killing bulls and goats and all that. And so the author of Hebrews says, consequently, therefore, in other words, because Jesus continues as a priest forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. By the way, do you know that there's no other religion that offers forgiveness of sins? All these other religions of do good, whatever it is, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, all the isms, they don't really have an answer to the sin problem. They talk about doing better, and maybe if you do really, really well, you can outweigh this and that, but they don't have any answer to the sin problem. But Paul gives us the answer here. Now again, for you and I, we've heard this so many times maybe growing up in church, it might not hit you with the impact that it would have hit the Colossians. These people, many of whom were not Jews probably growing up, they didn't grow up with the law. And now they've come to Christ, and Epaphras has been teaching them this, and Paul reinforces to them, in Christ, you have redemption. He has bought you. He paid a price. What was the price? Through his blood. So you have redemption. And then he says, even the forgiveness of sins. You know, we all, were it not for Christ, we would struggle with this guilt of the sins we've committed. If, if you're honest, you know, if you, if you gloss over it, you may not even feel guilty about your sin. But most of us, when you 
realize the way we've treated our brothers and sisters sometimes, we would feel guilt and shame. And we would have no answer to that, except Paul here tells us, Christ paid the price, he redeemed you with his blood on the cross. And that's where we have our forgiveness of sins. Is that a good thing to know? Yeah. All right, a couple other things that Paul tells us in this passage, and then we'll wrap up. Again, he's talking about Christ, and he says Christ is the image of the invisible God. Okay, so image. Here's what John Calvin said. We must be careful not to look for God anywhere else except for in Christ. For apart from Christ, whatever offers itself to us in the name of God will turn out to be an idol. Calvin was famous for having said, we're all idol factories. We'll we'll find anything to worship other than God because of our sin nature. And so here he's saying, if you want to really know God and love God, you've got to look directly to Christ and only to Christ. Because he is the image. John 1.18 says, No man has ever seen God. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has, man- has himself manifested himself to us. Okay, this might be the most important verse in the whole passage. Um, anybody ever seen God the Father here? Don't raise your hand. None of us have ever seen God the Father, right? You remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples... Uh, in that passage I read earlier where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't true, would I have told you that? He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then after that, it says this, and you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas spoke up. Remember what Thomas said? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, You would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus just told Thomas, you've seen the father. Then Philip pipes up and says what you and I would say probably. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and that's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Okay, so for you children who might struggle, for you adults that might struggle, to say, I want to, I, I, I could believe in God more, I could trust Him more if I could just see Him. And Jesus said, You've seen God, you've seen me. Now, we haven't seen Jesus with our eyes like Philip and Thomas did, but we know what He did. And Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. An image means a representation of what someone looks like. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's the image. Hebrews 1.3 says of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Kids, you ever gone to the beach at Deer Creek and you take your hand in the sand and you go like this in the wet sand? Or you take your foot in the wet sand and what happens? You make an imprint. Right? And you're like, hey, that looks just like my foot. So that's kind of what he's saying here. Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Um, John 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Christ is not only the creator of all things, he's, he's the maker of all things, and he's also the end. He's the reason why things were made. All right, last couple verses of this passage. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That word consist means hold together. So Paul's telling us Jesus Christ made everything. Anybody been looking at the full moon this week? That incredible moon that's been out there the last few nights? When you look up and see the sun and moon and stars, now some people give us the Big Bang Theory, right? Everything exploded and it went out. Well, there's lots of, there's lots of problems with that scientifically, but one is what would hold it all together in the perfect, in the perfect dimensions? What would hold the sun at just the right distance from the earth that it doesn't fry everybody to death or freeze us to death? What would hold the moon just the right distance from the earth such that the tides would work the way that they're supposed to? Jesus is the one, not only did he make everything, he's the one holding everything together. The King James uses the word consist. By him all things consist. Then it tells us another thing about Christ. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Okay, so when Jesus rose from the dead, it's not just saying he was the first to rise from the dead. Was Jesus the first to rise from the dead? No. There were other people that had died that had been raised back to life. Jesus was unique in that he was the first and only to raise himself from the dead. And to never die again. You know, they, they raised Lazarus from the dead, but guess what? Lazarus did have a funeral. He was alive for a little bit again, but he was still mortal. Jesus is not mortal. In Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, remember Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new. The resurrection of Christ started really an entirely new creation. He he said, I'll make all things new. Everything that was before was darkness and shadows. Things were hidden now. Now we have light. I make all things new. That's what Paul means when he says, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. So I want to talk about this word for a minute and then close. The word eminence means, according to Noah Webster, when you want definitions, always go to Noah Webster's dictionary first. The big green one. Who has the big green one? Okay, that's your dictionary. Eminence means exaltation or high rank or supreme degree. We learned about this in Philippians 2, do you remember? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the highest of the high. That's what preeminence means. The word preeminence is defined as superiority in rank or dignity, superior, superior in excellence. Now you hear the term in the Roman Catholic Church where I grew up, the cardinals who were the really high up guys that were you know, just under the Pope, they were addressed as your eminence. You know, your highness in other words. But I've never met a cardinal. If we met a cardinal, none of us in the room are probably intimidated by any Roman Catholic cardinals 
taking over the world or being of so much power, right? But it's not really that way anymore like it was hundreds of years ago. But we do worry about, maybe we shouldn't worry, we are aware that there are those who would like to make themselves preeminent. Um, you know, politically, there are the socialists and the communists of the world. You might say, I thought Reagan defeated the communists. No, he did not. The communists are still around and they want to take over the world. The Federal Reserve is around and it has unbridled power. There's all these entities out there that we get as Christians say, yikes, it looks like that group is getting the preeminence. Peter Allison, our good brother Peter Allison taught me this in his book. Um, the answer to that is the second psalm. We don't have to be worried about them having the preeminence. They don't have it. They never did. God sits in the heavens and he laughs at them in derision because they will not bow down and kiss the sun. They will lose. We may be being chastised for a time by God because of our putting our faith in our government or in the Federal Reserve or whoever, but no worries. They're not, they're not going to win. Christ already has the victory. So, when we talk about Christ having the preeminence, that's what we mean. He, is, he has the highest, most exalted rank, not to be outdone or outranked by anybody ever. The last verse says, It pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. So whatever God has conferred upon His Son, God has taken all the attributes about Himself and put Him in His Son. If we want to get to the Father, in other words, the only way to the Father is through the Son. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is what Paul is telling us is, Jesus would have been very unpopular in America at the cocktail parties right now. He would have been really popular as long as he just said his stuff and love your neighbor and all that. But as soon as he came up with, I am the only way, and there's no way to the Father, that's when our tolerant ears would have been offended, and still are, by most people in America. They don't like the exclusive claim of Christ, but that's what Paul is saying. It pleased the Father that in Christ should all fullness dwell. Christ is all to us. Apart from Him, as John said in his Gospel, we can do nothing. All right, I'm going to uh, summarize. We want to increase in our knowledge of Christ so that we can be enabled to do our duty. Jesus has made us suitable. He's made us meet to inherit heaven. He's prepared a place for us. He has carried us away out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Jesus paid a ransom for our bondage. So he is our redeemer. We have redemption. We have the redemption through his blood. He allows us to know the father. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the father because he's the image of the invisible God. He restored life to us through the resurrection. He had life after death. So can we. He's proven his preeminence that he outranks everybody by what he did at the cross. And finally, the only way we can be reconciled to the Father is through Jesus' blood at the cross. That's the only way. Do you think those are important things to know? If we want to know Christ, that, those are the core doctrines right there that we as followers of Christ must know and understand and believe. The Old Testament gave us the shadows. The Gospels in the New Testament gave us the life of Christ and his teachings but it's Paul in these letters that then cements it for us and makes it, brings it right home and says, because of what Christ has done, here's what you need to know about him. Whatever you do, don't leave home without Colossians chapter 1 in your hand. And I'll end with this. As Paul 
ended one of his teaching sections in Romans, he breaks into this doxology. You know, every sermon should again point us back to the gospel, point us back to our need for Christ. And I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's a dichotomy between learning and having knowledge and worshiping Christ. They go together. The more I know about him, the more I love him. The more I understand what he did for me, the more I want to fall on my face and worship him. Paul said this in Romans 11, and I close with this little doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us all of your word. I thank you that Pastor Robinette has encouraged us to focus on this particular portion of the Holy Scripture, where the Apostle Paul, recognizing himself as the chief of sinners, breaks into praise to you because he is remembering and acknowledging these truths about Jesus. He is reminding the Colossians, and through your word that lives on to us, he reminds us of these wonderful truths that we should be increasing in the knowledge of you. That as your people, we should know you. We should understand you. We should know that you have made all things, that you have redeemed us by Christ and his blood on the cross. We should know that you have made us meet to be partakers of this glorious inheritance. You've made us fit. We can now... We are now suited to be with you in heaven when you call us home. And Lord, thank you for reminding us that Christ has all the preeminence. There has never been anyone who outranked him, and there never will be. He is exalted because you have given him a name which is above every name. And I thank you and praise you in that name, the name of our risen and reigning King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.